I was uh, thinking earlier um, when we were hearing about the college students that went away to tell their stories during that coin retreat, uh, I was remembering in our first, I'd say probably six months or so of uh, being together as a core group, there was about 25 adults, half of them were college students, and we went away for a retreat to tell our stories to each other. That's how this church began, was a bunch of people, broken yet hopeful people, who came together and told their stories to one another and began to think about there being a place where anyone could walk through those doors with their story and be received by grace, be encouraged, be built up in their faith and uh, introduced to their savior if they don't know him. So uh, man, that is so, so encouraging uh, after these uh, almost 20 years. Well, I wanna ask you if you would to pull out your outline and turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke 11. And we're continuing a segment that, uh, that we began last week. It's kind of a two-part segment, and uh, we're going to work our way through the end of this passage. Um, a little bit of review from last week. There was a spiritual showdown, if you remember, as Jesus was carrying out his ministry. He uh, literally cast a demon out of a man, and uh, that man was mute, uh, under the control of that demon. And when that demon was gone, the man began to speak. It was a very obvious miracle to everyone around them. And it, uh, Luke says that the crowd was amazed. They were in awe. But two other responses followed that amazement. Uh, one group of people began to suggest that Jesus had performed that miracle with the power of Satan. And then the second group of people, not quite so bold, but they just began to wonder, um, you know, what was the reality of that? And, and maybe he could do something else, something more, something bigger to really verify that he is who he says he is. So those were the two crowds of people, the two responses. And last week, Jesus addressed the first accusation and basically showed how absurd it was for, the, for him to be working in league with Satan against Satan. Like that just doesn't make any kind of logical sense. Having established that, he also said, make no mistake, there are two kingdoms that are in conflict with one another. There is an invisible war and every single person, no exceptions, is on one or the other side of that war. Jesus said very specifically, if you're not with me, you're against me. So it kind of begs the question for all of us to say, whose side am I on? Spiritually speaking, like what's my condition? Am I in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of darkness? But then also if I'm in the kingdom of God, does my life reflect that I'm with him? Sobering questions, challenging questions as we think about how we live. This week, beginning in verse 29, Jesus is going to address the other crowd, the crowd that was demanding a sign. Back in verse 16, if you look back there, it says, others to test Jesus 
kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, a little Bible study methods here. When you're reading through your Bible and you're studying it, one of the things that I try to do when I come to a text is I try to assume nothing. And that's really hard because I've been in church for a long time and I've heard a lot of things and read a lot of things and I can kind of think that I know what's going on before I really find out what's going on. And so even as we look at this group, it says they're testing Jesus, they're demanding a sign from him. My first instinct might be that's bad. They shouldn't be doing that. How dare they? But what if they really are trying to figure out if this is the Messiah and that if he is, they're going to follow him? Like that has to be a possibility, right? I'm just, I'm just reading the text. I'm just trying to learn from it. So we're going to assume nothing, believe the best and ask this question. Are they seeking or are they stonewalling? Do they have a genuine heart to believe or have they already made up their minds and they're just merely messing with Jesus, trying to um, denigrate him in some way publicly? Jesus actually knows the answer to that question. That's what I'm trying to say here. Rather than us reaching our own conclusion, let's see what Jesus says. Look at verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, so there's this miracle There was an initial response, and now people are flooding in. Perhaps they heard about the miracle. And here's how Jesus spoke to them. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation." Now, the first thing that jumped off the page for me was it said the crowds were increasing. Now, if I'm Jesus, that's kind of exciting, right? Like fun to see lots of people coming out to hear. And what I want to do is make them really glad they came if I'm building a crowd. Like if all I'm about is big crowds, then I'm going to tell them what they want to hear. But notice Jesus strategically begins with, This generation, you guys, are an evil generation. So glad you came out today. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think he's trying to build a crowd. I think he's trying to cultivate connected, committed followers. And so he's saying some hard things to them. And if they're willing to hear those hard things, they'll stay. And if they're not, they'll go. And he seems to be okay with that. Now, the larger context of Luke's gospel and the immediate context of this this moment tells us that these sign seekers are not sincere. So we're going to pick that up as we get further into this. That is why Jesus refers to them as evil. He's saying your motives for asking for a sign are wrong. And therefore, I'm going to refer to you as an evil generation. It's also why he tells them he's not going to give them any more signs except one, the sign of Jonah. We'll get into that in just a moment. Now, keep in mind, 
Jesus and his disciples have been doing miracles all over the place, countless times. I mean, they're recorded in the gospels, but surely all of the miracles that he and his disciples performed aren't contained in those four gospels, right? So everybody knows what he's capable of doing and what he has done. He's saying that no more miracles are going to be formed, are going to be given, no more signs are going to be given going forward. And this creates a little bit of a trouble because even as we read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, we see some more miracles. So what exactly is he saying here? What, what does he mean when he says, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah? I think basically he's saying, I'm not going to do signs on demand. Like, I'm not just turning tricks for you guys. Think about when Jesus did miracles. What prompted those? Let's just think kind of four gospels. Whenever you see Jesus doing a miracle, what prompts that? I wrote down four things. Genuine need. Like typically, we'll just be told there was a need of some kind, physical or spiritual, that prompted him doing a miracle. Expressions of faith. Sometimes there would be somebody who would just demonstrate faith. Remember the four guys who uh, lower the paralytic down in front of him? And he talks about their faith prompting a miracle in that moment. Demonic defiance. Sometimes demons would speak out and he would silence them and send them along. That would prompt a sign or a miracle. And then godless oppression. There were times when he did miracles basically to address the religious elite and to correct them with his power and authority. So he's saying... I will continue to work in the way that I have worked, but I'm not going to do signs on demand. Those are kind of like show me signs. It's like somebody saying to Jesus, so you say you're the Messiah, show me. And he's saying, I'm not doing that anymore. That's not going to happen. I I am going to give you one sign though. It's the sign of Jonah. Jonah. Now, for a Jewish audience, that probably got the wheels spinning. What could he mean? Like, what could the sign of Jonah mean? So they're trying to go back to their Old Testament and thinking about what happened back there. It does say that that's going to be future tense. So what could he mean? What kind of sign of Jonah could be ahead of us? The only one I know of is behind us. Such an interesting setup. I think... Jesus has all these people on the edge of their seat waiting for this explanation for the sign of Jonah. In your notes, I wrote sign of signs. Um, That's really what it ends up becoming, both the one looking backward and then the one looking forward. Now, if you're not familiar with Jonah, that's totally fine. You've probably heard the story of the prophet in the belly of the fish, Um, But maybe you haven't. So this is an Old Testament book about an Old Testament prophet. And uh, I'm going to give you a summary of that. But we, we did a series out of that book last fall, fall of 2018. So if you're interested, go back. You can hear the whole book taught from beginning to end. But here's the big summary. 
Jonah was an Old Testament prophet who was commissioned by God to go to Israel's arch enemies, the Ninevites or the Assyrians. He was told to go to the capital city of Nineveh and there he was supposed to proclaim to those people impending judgment. And Jonah was afraid that if he were to do that, that those people would turn from their wicked ways, God would forgive them, and that would be the worst thing in the world because Jonah hated Assyrians. So he books a ship going in the opposite direction from Nineveh, thinking that he can outrun the will of God for his life. And through some God-ordained circumstances, Jonah ends up in the belly of an enormous fish. And he's there for three days for a little correction. And uh, while he's there, the Lord redirects Jonah underwater back toward Nineveh, safely pukes him up on dry land and recommissions him to go to that city and do as he was commanded. Jonah does so. He makes his way to Nineveh, walks into town, declares the impending judgment that those people are facing And guess what happens? They repent and God relents, just like he thought they would. There's a whole lot more to that story, but we need to focus in on the sign of Jonah. Jesus said that Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh. That's the the thing we have to try to unpack. And then he says that the son of man would in a similar way become a sign to that evil generation. So what's, what happened and what's going to happen that would be similar between Jesus and Jonah? I think the best explanation for this is the miraculous delivery from death. So for Jonah, he ends up in the belly of this fish. He should have died. He should have drowned in the ocean. God rescues him with the ship and delivers him to Nineveh. In a, in a very spectacular, miraculous sort of way. Surely, he told that story when he got to Nineveh. Kind of like, you guys are never gonna believe how I got here. Before I give you the message of impending judgment, <laughs> let me tell you a story. So that happened, and then we know they didn't, it, Jesus' audience didn't, but we know that Jesus is delivered from death three days in the grave, resurrected and demonstrating the power of God. So Jesus is saying, that's the one sign you've got ahead of you. That's what you can expect. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19 talks about the importance of the resurrection. It basically calls it the definitive evidence or sign for the identity of Christ. It's the linchpin of all of Christianity. So it is the sign of signs. Now with that in mind, Jesus goes on to ask, in light of everything that I've done, in light of everything that you know about me, like we're getting to the end of Jesus' ministry, so we've probably got at least two and a half years of stuff happening in a fairly small region of the world. In light of all of that, Jesus is saying, what more do you need? If you're really seeking, if you really wanna know, if you really want to believe, 
What more do you want me to do? What more do you need me to do? What good will more signs do for you? You've seen plenty. Jesus highlights some Gentiles or non-Jews who were far more responsive to God than this crowd right in front of him. That's how he kind of asks this question. He's gonna highlight a queen and then he's gonna go back to the story of the Ninevites. Look back at 31, verse 31. The queen of the south, which, which is a reference to the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, the sign seekers. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In parentheses, standing right in front of you. Uh, he's referring back to an exchange that we can read about and go back and study this on your own, 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 9. And in both of those places, we're told that uh, this queen visited Solomon. And it's, it's a pretty amazing story. But here's the reality of who Solomon was, 1 Kings 10. King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. All the kings of the earth. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. So that's what was true of Solomon. And this queen travels to see if all that she's heard is actually true. Now, I'm giving you a map here. She came from modern-day Yemen or somewhere in that area. So it's estimated she traveled about 1,200 miles. Now imagine that in the first century. 1,200 miles just to meet Solomon. Said she had these questions that she wanted to ask him and they were hard questions. And she thought if he's not as wise as everybody says he is, he can't handle this stuff. So she goes there asks her questions, and the writer of Kings says, when all was said and done and she'd seen and heard everything, there was no more breath in the queen. She was blown away. She believed, she actually praised God for what he had given to Solomon and to Israel through Solomon as their king. This is a Gentile, a pagan she doesn't know God except what she saw and heard in Solomon, and she believed. Jesus says to the sign seekers, you guys know that story, right? You guys have all heard of the Queen of Sheba, right? King Solomon, right? Something greater than Solomon in all of his glory is standing right in front of you. Why are you having such a hard time believing? It's challenging said, if the queen were here, she would condemn you for your indifference. She would be shocked that you would be so passive in my presence. Like she would be clamoring for the wisdom that I could give her. And yet you sit back with arms crossed saying, show me. Show me what you got. 
If a Gentile queen recognized the wisdom of Solomon and earnestly sought it out, surely the people of Israel would recognize the source of wisdom standing in their midst and seek him with all of their hearts. I have to ask myself this question. Do I genuinely seek wisdom from the source of all wisdom with the same zeal displayed by this queen? That's how we can apply this today. Just ask yourself, are you like the queen in your pursuit of the wisdom that God has for you? Then Jesus moves on to a second comparison. This one is between his generation, the sign seekers, and the men of Nineveh, verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Again, he's appealing to a very familiar story of a familiar setting. They would have known the prophet and the story of not only what Jonah did and said, but how the Ninevites responded. Listen, again, go back and listen to that series. They were as nasty a people as they could be. I mean, it it was their evil that prompted God to send Jonah to them to begin with. And they repented from the king down to every other person in that city. Just unbelievable. Amazing revival. Jesus says something greater than Jonah is here in front of you today. So essentially Jesus is saying all that I've said, all that I've done, and all that I am is more than everyone and everything that has come before me. In fact, all of Israel's history, Jesus would say, has been pointing to me for this moment in time. So what more do you need? I ask myself, am I waiting for God to perform miraculously for me on my terms before I wholeheartedly commit to him? It's a great question for us. Am I holding out on God because I'm waiting for him to do something to wow me so that I'll finally say, I'm yours. You can have me. You can have all of me. Anything that you want, anything that you ask, my answer is yes. Am I willing to say that today and tomorrow and the next day or am I going to wait for him to somehow do something that will impress me enough to give him my life? Challenging, challenging questions. If we are holding back as the sign seekers were, we have a vision problem. The title of this message, which I unfortunately left off, you can write it in yourself, is spiritual ophthalmology. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is addressing their perspective. He's addressing how they look at life, look at him, look at their future. It's a problem of perception. He's basically saying, you might want to get your eye checked. Look at verse 33. 
he starts with an illustration related to light and sight. And uh, he, he talks about this idea that no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that all those who enter may see the light. Basically, he's uh, addressing the idea that, that their accusation that he's hiding something. They're, first of all, they were saying that he might be in league with Satan, right? That was one of the accusations. Um, maybe they have in their mind that this is a messianic hoax. He's just one more guy in a long line of guys who have all said, I'm the Messiah. Maybe he's hiding that. Maybe he's just making a political power play. He's just trying to get in control. He's trying to say, listen, if, if all of those things were true, then I'm not the light of the world. But we know, and surely they did, he claimed to be the light of the world. And so his argument here is, who lights a light and then puts it down in the cellar? Who lights a light and just puts a basket over it? None of us would do that. And God certainly wouldn't do that. So he lit a light. He put a light in a dark world. And he set it right smack dab in the middle of everything so that all could see. There's nothing hidden. Jesus said, you've, you've seen me. I've taught, I've healed, I've corrected, I've, I've done all that I've prayed, I've done everything right in front of you. The light is as visible as it could be. If you can't see it, you got an eye problem. There's something wrong with you. Look at verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. So Jesus is doing a little spiritual ophthalmology right here. But he's using physical eyes as the illustration, but he's talking about something else. There's a lot of symbolic language here, and it can feel a little bit cryptic or a little bit mystical as you read through it the first time. But as we begin to identify what's he referring to with all of these symbols, it makes perfect sense. The eye in this context refers to a person's spiritual attitude, their posture, and their disposition. So your eye, if you're not seeing the light of the world standing right in front of you, there's something wrong with your attitude, with your posture, with your disposition toward what God is revealing about himself. That's your problem. A healthy eye is receptive and responsive to God's truth. And, and you'll know that there's a healthy eye when you see light all around in the person who uh, is receptive and responsive. You'll see light here and it'll look in the form of like wisdom have you ever come across a person that they've just got wisdom, they've got discernment, they've got understanding about things, they, like they make sense of life, they don't overreact, 
They, they just seem steady. They demonstrate the fruit of the spirit. That's a person with a healthy eye. The queen of Sheba, the Ninevites, healthy eyes because of the way they responded to the truth that they were given. Here's a, a great declaration from one who had a healthy eye. Psalm 63, one. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. There's the Queen of Sheba. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's a healthy eye. That is someone who sees the light and invites it in. The bad eye is resistant and indifferent. The bad eye kind of has their, their life all figured out, all worked out. They're doing their own thing. I don't need anybody. I don't need any help. I don't need any ad additional truth. I got my own truth and I like it. I like it a lot. As a result, the life of that person is full of darkness. Light can't get in. And it looks like foolishness and apathy and pride and self-absorption and resentment. You know, Jesus referred to the sign seekers as evil. Same word as the bad eye. That's why he said that. He, he's trying to pull all this together. Go, listen, you guys, your problem is not a lack of light, but your ability to see it. You're hard-hearted. You're stiff-necked. You won't receive what God wants to give you. And then he has an encouragement there. Be careful, lest the light in you be darkness and kind of staying with this ophthalmology kind of metaphor, we ought to get regular eye exams. Like get your eyes checked. Bring yourself to God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. And have them take a look at you. Kind of look into your eye and see, do you see anything there that would obstruct what God wants to show me? If you do, please tell me. I need to know so that I can address that, so I can invite God to change that in me. Be careful. And then there's uh, this great assurance at the end. I love this last encouragement that Jesus gives this crowd. After saying some pretty hard things to them, verse 36, if then your whole body is full of light, so if your eye is healthy and you're inviting in the, the truth, the light of God, and you're responding to that, however you need to respond in light of what he's saying, you're full of light. And if your body is full of light, having no dark part, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. I, I think this is the key. To Jesus' statement to his disciples, you are the light of the world. That's how that works. He's the light of the world. We invite that light in. We let it change us from the inside out and then we become the light of the world. God uses us 
in dark places. He allows us to bring truth to a world that hates the truth. But some will hear it and some will change. So let's ask this question. So what? So great story, amazing things, kind of challenging. What about it? Here's some questions for you to consider. And just ask the Holy Spirit. This is that moment where you can be like the Queen of Sheba. You can come to God and you can say, shine that light all over me, all around me, all in me. Reveal anything that needs to be seen and then bring about change. So here's some questions that you and I can ask to invite some of that light in. Are you sign-seeking? Just think practically through every day. Is your posture as you go throughout a day, are you kind of holding back from God until he delivers? Or is your answer yes, whenever and however he asks? Are you pursuing and responding to what God has revealed? See, you're not responsible for what, what God hasn't shown you yet. But he's shown you something. If you've entrusted your life to him, he's, he's given you some light. So how are you responding to the light that you've been given? Here's what I know. Those who respond well to the light they're given, guess what they get? More light. It's amazing how that works. Lastly, are you due for an eye exam? Do you need to just kind of bring yourself certainly to the scriptures, certainly to God in prayer, but maybe to a member of this community, this community of faith, and just say, hey, how do you experience me? What do you see in my life? It doesn't make them God. It's not like they know everything. It just, you're just saying, we're in relationship. I trust you. What do you see in me? Is there anything that needs to change? Consider that, if you would, prayerfully, and uh, see how God directs you in responding to uh, this passage. Take a moment and prayerfully consider.